Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to be joined by a guest who has undeniably become a staple of the new queer canon due to his amazing performances, sharp wit, and crafting of instantly unforgettable characters. With nearly 200 film and TV credits to his name, as well as a celebrated career on stage, he captured the hearts of the internet with his iconic drag portrayal of Chloe Sevigny. In the genre space, he's appeared in such films as Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse and You're Killing Me, and helped shine a light on the horrors of high school with a recurring role on TV's Heathers. Recently, the filmed version of his celebrated one-person show, Bright Colors and Bold Patterns, was a festival smash. Please welcome writer, actor, and performer extraordinaire, Drew Drogi. Hi, Michael. Hi, Drew. Welcome I to love the show. I love that intro. Thank you. Wow. Well, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here. I've wanted to do this for a long time, so I'm glad we're here. Yes, I'm excited. Uh, you know, it's funny. We just, in the month of October, did a little horror thing together. Yes, we did. Oh, my God, that was so much fun. It was a live read of uh, The House on Haunted Hill, and uh, you got to... Uh, have a whole dinner party of, of deadly guests. And I get to be Vincent Price, which I've never gotten to do before, which was terrifying because, I mean, I grew up loving Vincent Price and, I mean, House of Wax, like, Dr. Fibes, come on. And it's one of those things that's like, I've always felt like it was kind of in my wheelhouse, but but I've never tried it. Right. Also, James Adomian and Bill Hader do like these amazing Vincent Price impressions. And so like, I've, I've always sort of felt like it was off limits. <laughs> so I was very, it was very, I was very touched to be asked. And I, and I, then I just had to be like, like I try to do with all the impressions. I'm like, I try to do like a hint at the person and then I just kind of go crazy with it. Cause it's more fun to just sort of, cause I'm not really an impressionist, but we had a, God, we had such a good time. I mean, that lineup of people were just incredible that we got for that reading. With, yeah. You know, it was it was such Sam a Sam Pancake and Mitch Silpa, Lynn Stewart, and I mean, my God, it was just it was, was such a fun time. And you know, uh, one of the things that you said when you mentioned Doctor Fibes, I had this instant uh, image in my brain of just how uh, much Vincent Price loved Delicious Camp. Oh, one hundred percent. He completely got it. Because I've accused uh, accused as a, a strong word, but I have inferred on many occasions on this show that one of the greatest drag performances in history is Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I do think that Vincent Price's uh, Doctor Fibes is pretty draggy. Yes, yeah. yes, and it's but it's also like for actors to have that that. Sp- I mean, first of all, there's no one like Robert England or Vincent Price, and I love that they were given these showcases to do that and it it absolutely is drag at its at its best and camp at its best and absolutely and i and both of us are going to say those things with complete respect and reverence and not say it like oh it's like some campy thing like some idiot would uh, you know would relegate camp or drag to that space but it's they you know it's like as you know as an actor i mean i, I don't know it's like i, I don't want to i i personally to make this about me dream of like a a, a career like that to have to to get to do that i mean what do you want to be stuck on like some procedural hospital show forever and just (laughs) give it dry medical information that would be no like you know it's like yeah i love that you get to you know i mean and and i think it's like what i grew up with it's like monsters were so exciting and special and the monsters were the heroes to me like growing up i mean i right you know. which i think is a good uh way to leap right into this this conversation and uh talk about growing up in monsters and all of the things that lead us into this this world uh so i will start the show the same way i start every show with the same first question i ask every guest and it is simply this 
uh, why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to go. I have no answer to that. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I love that. I I have to say, like, for me, always, like, from, from you know, I, I my mom told me this when I was, like, when I was, when I was three, I insisted on being Gene Simmons from Kiss for Halloween. Because I, and I didn't even, I wasn't even, like, a Kiss fan, but I saw them on TV and I saw Alice Cooper on the when he hosted the Muppets and he did Welcome to My Nightmare with all the Muppets right and Michael Jackson's Thriller and I mean just like growing up in that where I was like that's what I want to be that's what I want to do monsters were weirdly safe to me because there there was like a uh, there was a performance to it and there was power in it and um and it was just so much. I, I don't know. I feel like I have long complained that uh, you know that I that I had a like really lovely and and boring childhood. Like I didn't have any like real major drama in my house. So I loved that extra. That I loved that you know uh, you know. Uh, so I saw. I remember when I was seven years old when because in eighty four when Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Back in the '80s, they didn't. They didn't, um, um, or the projectionists just didn't care. But they didn't really. Um, what's it like? Specialized trailers in front of movies. So I remember we went and saw Snow White in the theater, and they played a trailer for Nightmare on Elm Street before that. And there's a pairing. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I remember the shot of going down that um, circular nightmare staircase in the first, as and it was so formative for me that I was like, I want to be there. I want to be a part of that. I could not wait to see Nightmare on Elm Street. And I saw it when I was really young. I remember that when I was 10, my parents took me and saw Nightmare 3 in the theater. And that was, you know, that's one of the best horror movies ever. Right. So, like, I just have always loved it. And then my mom really fostered my love of, of horror movies. Um, and my brother, we but we loved them. And, and so... My mom would make a deal when we would go to the video store. I would want to get a Freddy or Jason movie. And my mom would be like, okay, you can get a Freddy or Jason movie, but you also have to get a Hitchcock movie. And we're going to watch, you're going to watch a good horror movie too, which is win-win. I mean, right. it was like, great. So we would watch Vertigo or or there'd be other movies like, you know, that my mom would, that, you know, like play Misty for me, which I watched as a, it just totally screwed me up forever. <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, like I, I, I loved, I just was always always um watching it and there was just something about it that i feel like yeah you you know you you know you you feel like outsider from an early age before you even know why you are an outsider you know um i completely identified with those final girls you know in all the movies and you know it's like the quiet nerd who's going to be a virgin and do all the right things and then fight the killer and win you know i totally understood that narrative um i used to um, I used to be able to, and I don't even think I can do this anymore. But as a kid, I used to know that I was dreaming when I would dream, and and, and I would, I would be able to wake myself up. Right. And so, I dreamed that I would, I I I would like go to bed and pray that I would be in a a Freddy dream, 
and be able to like wake myself up or like be Freddie's friend or something. I don't know. <laughs> like I just I totally identified with Freddie. I was like, you know. Well, that makes it even better that we started this conversation off with reference to Robert England. Yes. Because I, I mean, you know, I, but I didn't know that that specifically was a film that had such impact and imagery oh, that had such impact. I had Freddie Krueger's poster over my bed. I mean, I was that I loved Freddie movies. What I love, too, about what you said, and you touched on this a little bit, is that one of the things that drew you to Alice Cooper on the Muppets or you know, the idea of Freddy Krueger or Kiss was there was a power in the performance. Yes. And, you know, then you later alluded to the, the outsider status of the final girl. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talk about on the show regularly is sort of that queer draw to horror because it is... Mm-hmm. A genre of otherness. Yes. And what I think is really interesting, specifically about uh, discussing the power in the performance, is it does kind of connect back around to that idea of of the drag persona that yeah. we, we talked about. Sure. And sort of taking that otherness and in, in, in the world, especially if you're a queer kid who feels like, you know, bullied or on the outside mm-hmm. or like you just don't fit in. You take you're seeing in these movies in varying ways mm-hmm. this idea that you can take what sets you apart and make it your power. Yeah, I and well, and also I feel like you know, growing up and you get to, you know, you can relate to all of it. Like you relate to the final girl and the monster, right? And then you usually get like the the hot jocks and the mean girls that are fun to laugh at. Like so. I enjoy every part of it. Like, it's like, you know, it's just like, you know, whereas like the more traditional, like John Hughes movies or that sort of thing, those are fine. They're just fine. Right. But I don't relate to anyone in any of those movies. And I feel like I relate to all of a horror movie in that way because it is about um, being extra and being other, you know? I love that. And I'm curious too, you know, that you had this this connection to these movies very early on, and I love the idea that your your mom fostered it. Like, yeah, oh, totally. Uh, but was there a point when you were engaging with media and these movies that you were you were sort of obsessing over that you had that pivot where you're like, I don't just want to passively watch things; I want to be part of this world. Yeah, I mean, it's like I uh, we were talking about this earlier before we started. I I obsessively read Fangoria magazine as, mm-hmm. and I loved um, you know and then I you know and then later when like Entertainment Weekly came you know and I was always read and then I was reading like New York magazine when I got older and was like and I wanted and I would read about you know it's so crazy the people that I get to work with now I mean I remember reading about Jackie Beat right. I remember seeing Julie Brown on TV and being like these people I just feel such a connection with and so weird that these years later I mean and and beautiful and awesome and I feel so lucky that I get to call these people friends and and um that I get to do crazy shows with them but I've always uh, but then there's a, this other part when you grow up in North Carolina in the 90s before the internet and you know um when you're going you're never going to do that with your life you're never going right. to meet these people and you're kind of told forever like yeah that's fun that's a fantasy and then you're going to go do something else with your with your life right and it was really like it wasn't really for me until college. And I went to a small liberal arts school where no, which was like with a great theater department, but no one did it professionally. Right. And it was, and I just saw so the the further I would I was going and doing it, the more I just kind of kept doing it. And then it, I guess it was like when I went like for a summer abroad, and I spent like a I went did a theater program, and I saw like oh actors are actually. You can actually have a living doing this. You don't have right. to be 
you know, Meryl Streep, like there are a million actors out there who are doing things. It's not like there's one that can. And um, so I just I and then I moved out to L.A. almost 20 years ago and was just sort of like, I'm just going to have an adventure. I had friends out here. I had no business. I had no like I don't I don't know why. I just I just kind of kept doing what I loved and I sort of fell into doing like improv and sketch comedy and all that kind of stuff and then it just kind of kept me going mm-hmm. even though I spent years like not working. But I kind of kept believing like this is what I love and do what you love and and I was getting closer and closer to the people that I connected with as a child, you know, that right. I that I would see and go Oh, well, it kind of all makes sense that I'm here doing this, you know, because I inherently knew that I that I really wanted to do this. And a lot of it just came from me just being crazy and not listening to all the people that told me no (laughs) or or just letting that make me work harder. And it's so weird. It's like I need to go too deep into this because I feel terrible. A, A like this icon guru acting teacher that I had no idea how many people had worked with died yesterday and I had a horrible experience with him. And everyone's posting like, oh, my God, he changed my life. He told me to, to like pursue my dreams. And I was like, this person is the one person that I have referenced to say he told me I would never be an actor. Right. He told me I should never try to do this. And he, you know, and it was a weird day yesterday to be like, I'm really obviously sorry this, you know, giant has left us. But I'm also like, God, that guy had no way with me, like didn't know and didn't see me and. But maybe that inspired me to do what I was doing more. You know, what I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I never, I always had people around me who encouraged me. But I think, like, my family is like genuinely shocked that I'm doing that. I'm still acting and creative for a living. I think right. they all thought I would do something else in my life. Um, when you were talking about the acting coach, I was reminded you did a web series where you play an yes. acting. Coach. Yes, I will. That was I, I. It was called Hollywood Acting Studio, and I. Uh, <laughs> I think that you were phenomenal in it. Thank you. Because uh, when you live, especially in LA, that culture of like acting classes is so bizarre. There's like a d- surreal David Lynchian sort of yes. element to like oh, acting absolutely. classes. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's like that type of person who. Now I got to clear the person who 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 died yesterday was like a theater person. Okay. It was not the, not the kind of person that I played on the web series, but yes, the person I played on the web series is a very specific type of person who is a colossal failure professionally <laughs> and personally, uh, probably like lives a very sad existence, but owns these very small four walls, you know, and has a very small group of people. Right. There is a thing where I've always been obsessed with cults and cult leaders and I think it's all tied into that. And it's like, mm-hmm. I another thing was like, my mom was also very obsessed with the Manson case and had this whole like this crazy, weird kind of connection with the, I mean, this is a crazy story, but like not a real connection, a literal connection to the Manson family. But she was in LA visiting with her family the week that the Manson murders were happening and she just became obsessed with it. As a, as someone from South Carolina would be like, what's happening in the world? You know, right. as as everyone did with the, with that happening. But I've also been obsessed with that i that that power that someone has over a group of people, and the idea that somebody can just tell other people to do their bidding, and that's acting teachers and a lot of them in L.A. who right. who have nothing, have no control or no power outside that room. But in that room, they're going to crush you. 
They're going to tell you all the stuff about the business that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're going to essentially, it's it's like a bad doctor. They're going to keep you sick. So you keep coming back for pills. They're never going to tell you like, leave, get out of here. You're amazing. You know, they're going to be like, mm, I see you, but I can make you better. And you're not as good. And so they play on insecurities and they, they prey on insecurities and they, um, they're a lot of fun to play. Well, what I think is interesting about this read of the character and, and that just sort of the deep dive into that is uh, this, char- this character and that show are comedy. And it's it's played for laughs. Right, right. But it's sort of like that Mel Brooks adage that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, tra- tragedy happening to someone else's comedy. Yes, and yes. W- and what you're talking about is is really like some deep-seated neurosis and like kind of heavy stuff yeah. filtered through a comedy lens. Yeah. Which kind of brings me around to a point that I like to ha- uh, bring up when I have guests who exist in the comedy space on the show. Uh, because we talked at, at the top of this conversation about your, your childhood obsession with horror and how like that kind of pushed you into the world of performance and things that you like about it but I think to listeners who are hearing you on the show or maybe know you for Chloe or some Mm -hmm. of these other things they maybe are not aware that you're a big horror fan because you are very well known in the world for comedy yeah I mean I I yes it's so funny it's like I feel like there's a real connection there because there's a it's like good horror like good comedy the, uh, they're both based in the truth. Well, exactly. And that was what I was going to ask. Do you feel that it's a very thin line between horror and comedy? Yes, I do. And I think it's really hard to do both at the same time. I think very few things, because I think a lot of things try to be like, like we say, when they try to be camp, then they're immediately not. Right. Or when they try to do both things. But I, but I do think that, the other thing too is there's a perception that making horror is easy. Right. Or that making comedy is easy. Or that they are less valid than dramas, which right. must be good. Historical fiction. Well, it must be good. It was history. It's like saying it was black and white or it's a foreign film. It must be good. But horror is trash. Comedy is mm-hmm. trash. You know, the fact that, you know, get me started this year on like the Golden Globes when they separate dramas and comedies and musicals. The fact that A Star is Born and Bohemian Rhapsody are both competing as dramas because they think they're better right. than what they are. And they're both musicals. Musicals are incredible. Be a musical. That's what right. you say. That's what you're setting out to be. Why are you allowed to say, we're not submitting ourselves as a musical? Because that's definitely the B category to to dramas. Says who? You know, and it's like, so I feel like, I feel like um, uh, dramatic performances are, are always given more credit than comedic or horror performances. And it's like, you know, come on. Ellen Burstyn and The Exorcist or Sissy Spacek and Piper Laura, anyone in Carrie. Right. You know, and I mean, I'll even say like, you know, a friend of mine, when I were watching The Stepfather the other day, I was like, Jill Sholin is amazing in this movie. It's like, there are people in these movies that give incredible performances and you're like oh but that's just a horror movie or that's just a comedy that's easy i'm like that means they're good at what they did right well it's interesting that this comes up this week because literally last week i kind of went off on a tear about this strange uh industry perception of like genre superiority Mm -hmm. because there is this perception uh, across the industry that there are high art and yes. low art, right. and the idea, and I, I said last week, you know, the irony as someone who writes horror films and goes into a lot of meetings with studios is a lot of studios still act like horror is the black sheep. They like go out of their way to like label movies a thriller or it's postmodern horror or whatever. But there's not a, a studio in town that did not keep its doors open 
without yes, a horror right, movie. Right, right, exactly. And, and uh, someone said it very dis- uh, succinctly recently that the thing uh, about comedy and horror is they both seek to control the audience's breathing. Ooh. And I thought that was really fascinating that. and insightful. And once I started like thinking about that, it's sort of true because whether it th- be through laughter or fear, that is a much more difficult task mm-hmm. to achieve than just taking an audience on a story from point A to point B. Not that like this is that's to besmirch drama at all. Sure. It's, but of course. I just think that like when horror done right or comedy done right, it's a, it's not an easy job. No. And that's why you have the, you know, the, the icons of the, these directors that have made these films that are, you know, that there's a reason why. Right. You know, you have, you know, the the John Carpenter and, you know, and, and it's like, you know, or whoever. And it's like, that's, the, you know, I love that about like controlling someone's breathing. I mean, that's, that's, that's so true. And it's also like in working in it, I feel like you never feel like you've mastered it right. or you shouldn't feel like you've mastered it. I feel like if you, then you should just quit if you feel like you have, but in doing comedy, it's like, we're always going, can we, can we find something better? Can I deliver that line better? Can we take a different breath here? Right. Is there, you know, and, and, um, and same with, you know, so much of it in like editing when you're like, Oh, we could hold just a little bit longer and it's funnier or we've ruined it. Right. Or with same with horror. If we if we hold too long in the shot, we're no longer scared. Right. Or we no longer, you know. And I think it's that thing when you're in it, it's like that's exciting about working within that. Um, you know, and I've I don't know, I just have you know, and also I think for me, like I did the theater school thing and I've had the people tell me I'm terrible and I did drama and I would get laughs. And I and I didn't trust that for so long. I was I just thought I was terrible because I'm making everyone laugh. Right. And I was basically told as much. It was like God. I would go up and I was trying really hard to be the best dramatic actor I could. And I mean, and then I you realize like, well, that is what comedy is. Just try to be tell the truth, and then it will be funny. Don't worry about what's funny, and like, or you know, just you know, and just look at horror. Like, what are your nightmares? Right. What is the thing that just would scare you the most of it happened to you right now and how can we convey that and make everyone in a room together feel that thing together there's also a unifier in it that like you you're there and you're you know there's um definitely in horror where you're just like you're all like fighting this battle together you know and it feels really much like you know i do like the idea that even for someone such as yourself who works constantly and has so many credits to your name, it seems that you feel like you're always learning something new about the craft. I try. I mean, I try to. I mean, it's like the thing is like it's what keeps it fun for me. And the things that I'll do where I'm just like, even if I read it and go, I don't know if this is great. First of all, I have no idea if things are good or when I read it, I don't know. But like I'll do things that are just like a stretch for me or something I haven't right. done before because I just I'm like I'm. You know, I, I want to do something where, you know, I'm playing a romantic character or a nice person. I, I never get like nice people um, or somebody that's, you know, um, you know, I just did a movie where I was like not I was just pure plot. I wasn't funny at all mm-hmm. in the movie. And it was a comedy, I think. But it was I mean, I think was, my scenes weren't. But yes, it was a comedy. Um, and it was really fun. And they kept apologizing. Like we, and I was like, I love that I. I want the exercise of like doing something where I I'm not able to right pull a a Drew Drogi thing and get a you know and get a cheap laugh here that I have to just be 
you know, in the scene and, and drive the scene. And, you know, so it just makes it fun, you know, to like, otherwise it just feels like, you know, and then there, there are jobs you do that you are just going in and punching a clock or, or you're just like, well, this is a great fun group of people that, right. you know, so, um, I also just like to be busy. So the more I do, the less I feel precious about anything. And I can sort of, it makes me, you know. Well, I was thinking about asking you this a little later after we talked about uh, more of your credits. But I think now Mm -hmm. is actually a good uh, moment to uh, lay this question out there since uh, everything you just said kind of leads right up to this. Um, Normally, for people who have done uh, such a variety of work, I like to ask them, what's, what's a kind of role that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? But I was reading this very morning because at the time of this recording, uh, they did that actress roundtable that The Hollywood Reporter does. Oh, oh, great. I, lo- I always love that. And I was reading in The Hollywood Reporter this morning. It was the roundtable of Glenn Close, Catherine Hahn, uh, Lady Gaga, uh, Regina King, and uh, Rachel Weisz. Okay. I think that's everybody. I'm okay. sorry if I left you out. I'm, I'm sure you're listening. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the Olivia co- Coleman's listening, just like sharpening a knife somewhere. <laughs> I hope Olivia Coleman listens to Dead for Filth, honestly. Um, but one, one of the things that the the reporter asked, I was like, I not only love this question, I am stealing it for today's episode Great. of Dead for Filth. Because I, I have, I, I would frequently ask, like, what's the kind of role that you've never played that you want to? But they phrased it in such a way that, like, adds a layer of challenge, which is, what's the kind of role that you would like to play that you know you will never be asked to play? Ooh, that totally changes it. Um, I would say, uh, I mean... I, I, I mean, the first question I was going to say, I, I really want to play um, a televangelist. I really want to play a minister. But that's also in the world of like cult leader and right. that kind of thing. But I feel like I could do that. I think because that's, you know, I would also just love to be just some closeted Nelly awful. <laughs> maybe, maybe like, you know doing meth with hookers kind of like dark dark role that's also a tele- I'm, I'm like have a dream of doing that I really want to go deep with some with all my like you know southern issues coming up but I don't know I in terms of what I would never be asked to do it would be really fun to play like a mafia crime boss um I would love to play you know like uh, just some like like a humorless cop um you know, because those are those are the parts that I remember when I was when I went through training at the Groundlings. That would be what I would be assigned to play when we'd have to do like against type. Right. And those were really fun. I was terrified of them because I was like, oh, that's not me. That's not me. But they were really fun to sort of have to play with in that. And and um, but I but I also <clears throat> the great and terrible thing with Groundlings training is like they make you play these roles that you would never play in 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 you know, professionally, right. it stretches you in a way that like, you know, comedically. And then, you know, you go out in the world, and you're like, I can do anything. Look at my series. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're not really going to play the, you know, the, the tough, the, the tough guy. Um, but yeah, I think someone who's just like really, you know, like, ugh, I don't know, humor or just like some, some uh, heavy, some, I don't know. Vigo Mortensen character or something would be really <laughs> Drew Drogi in Eastern Promises. <laughs> <laughs> Just naked and beating people. Talk about a scene. <laughs> I remember uh, seeing Eastern Promises in the theater and just being kind of like, "Oh, they're they're doing this. They're doing. They're going for it." Yeah. Just yeah. A, you have to be fearless. I think. Oh, 
I he's an actor who I love. I think he's a phenomenal actor, and I hate most of his movies. Like I will go see anything he's in because I think he's so good. Right. He's one of those actors, like, but I'm just like, God, I really didn't. Um, I did. I did like Eastern Promises, but I don't remember anything about it other than that scene. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, of course. I don't know. I do think uh, the joy of art, uh, because I started thinking about it recently. I took a group of people to see a uh, a movie that I was kind of curious about, but was sort of outside of my wheelhouse, and it did not play well with my group of friends. Mm. Now, I do notoriously on the show kind of like avoid uh, negative commentary of my own. I let guests say whatever they want, but sure. uh, it, it was one of those where I kind of like was like, is this movie bad or is it just not for me? That a- and is that's- a lot. I-, I feel like as I've gotten older, I'm able to distinguish that, and just I also am like I I don't like to like totally. I it just there's no point. And just totally shitting on someone's joy. It's like if someone likes something, there's no point in being like, I'm right. going to I'm gonna try. But you also, it's that thing you learn early on. You're like, oh, you you seem smarter when you're negative about everything. When you right. hate everything, you seem way more intelligent than when you love something. And when I genuinely love something, it's harder to, to argue why I love it versus why I don't like it. But so, I get more joy out of singing the praises of things. Me and too. I- me too. And I think it's also like... You know, it's like there's no point. And then there are a lot of things that I'll watch and go. And people love to argue about, you know, we've talked about this earlier, like we're, we're nerds. We love to argue and get into it. But there are plenty of other things that I'll watch and go, this just wasn't for right. me. And that's not, I, I don't say that disparagingly to the film or the or the whatever it is. I just didn't care for it. But it doesn't mean it's bad. It right. doesn't mean it's not for everyone. I think that's a difficult uh, destination for some people to arrive at mm-hmm. because I think that some people and I think film school and art school and theater school kind of uh, try and teach you to have like this idea of and I say the idea of a refined palette but art yes. is so subjective completely that you know Attack of the Killer Tomatoes could be someone Citizen Kane and sure. they're not wrong they're not wrong and I think that what is important about it is like arriving at that point especially if you are a working artist to recognize this is maybe not for me, but I can understand why someone else would like it. Sure. And also I think as an artist, it like, we know how hard it is to get anything made. Yes. Any play, any album, any movie is a miracle because it, there are so many things that could have interfered in its creation that if someone's yep. just like, we're going to watch this blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's not really my jam, but good for them for getting yes, that done. Absolutely. And it's like, that's the thing. I'm amazed that anything's good. <clears throat> I'm, am- I'm amazed that anything's okay. Right. Because any step in the way in the formation of something can, can throw something off and you have 8 million artists working together to make something. So right. it's to have like a singular vision and you know people like what they like i mean i was with a group of friends recently and we were all going around the room saying what's a movie that you could watch every day for the rest of your life right and i said serial mom and half the room laughed at me and i was like well you'll never be my people right like you don't have to agree with me but i know that i could watch serial mom every day for the rest of my life and laugh at it and love it and i support it and it's amazing now it's not my favorite movie of all time. It's in the it's in my easily in my top five, but right. I don't think it's the best movie. But, but but I do think it's the best movie. You know what I mean? It's like I do think it's like as valid as I mean. I always say my number one movie is Nashville, the Altman movie, and I love that movie. I couldn't watch that every day. No, it's, it's a heavier it's movie. It's devastating. Than you, yeah. It's also. <clears throat> 
you have to be in the right headspace to sit down and give three hours of your life to, you know, Barbara Harris and Shelley Duvall and, and company. But Serial Mom, it's like, it's no less good than Nashville. But also, like, if someone literally said Citizen Kane, I'm like, you're an asshole. <laughs> you're going to watch Citizen Kane every day of your life. Get away from me. You'd be bored. You're, you're not a good person. You're, you're, you're not. I don't think you're a smart person or someone who's seen a lot of movies. You've just heard that title is. And of course, Citizen Kane is great. But how? What a what a basic opinion. That's just like saying, you know, that's like saying I love filet mignon or I love pizza. Like, it's just such a it's such an easy answer. Yeah. Answer. What I like about the selection of Serial Mom is it sort of brings us around to mm. a lot of the conversation that we've been having. Yeah, I Be- didn't think about that. But you're right. It does. Because earlier uh, you mentioned the notion uh, that you can't necessarily intentionally make camp. Right. But I don't know that that's entirely true. Well, John Waters can. John Waters. He can do anything. But there are there are certain artists who understand, and it, it goes back to the idea of writing off camp value as as a lesser form of art, because when you yes. try and make camp, it's very difficult to do, which shows it is very difficult to execute camp, so it requires a deft touch. Yes. And I think of things like John Waters' work, or mm-hmm. um, you were just in a stage version of uh, Die, Mommy, Die. Yes, yes. Which Charles Bush, absolutely, as a writer, understands mm-hmm. th- the power of camp. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I really think that when people get camp and understand how to execute it properly, it can be very artistic. Well, it also is. I mean, John Waters and Charles Bush are perfect examples of people who have complete respect for the genre and the characters that they are writing and and presenting. They, I mean, you can tell in, like in Serial Mom, John Waters loves Beverly Sutphin. He loves right. that Kathleen Turner character. And he, he makes you root for her. Right. You want her to kill more. And you're on her side. You know, there's no sense of like, look at this crazy woman. Look at this right. stupid woman who's a psycho. It's like, nope, I agree. I'm, I am in it. I'm here for it. You know, same with Charles. When Charles Bush's plays, he writes these women who he plays. He writes the roles for himself to play. And he loves these films and he lives in the world of them. And so there's no sense of like, look how bad these old movies were. Right. Because you watch you watch things that are trying to be, and again, not to knock on other people's things, but I've seen things that try... A lot of times it's in commercials. Right. I get really irritated by like when they try to do like 50s housewife and it's just the most obvious things you've seen before about, you know, it's like you've obviously never lived in that or you actually don't know. I'm wondering if the anatomy of doing camp well is not necessarily on the micro level but the macro level. Because I think when I see camp fall apart, it's when people create characters that they're like winking at the audience. Mm -hmm. I think the the property as a whole can be a wink. But the characters existing within the world of camp have to be fully realized and believe they don't know that what they're doing is outrageous. Absolutely. And I think that that's sort of like when you look at the landscape of great characters in cult cinema that are wonderful camp performances, one of the most basic and obvious ones to look at, but for good reason, is Tim Curry and Rocky Horror. Sure. Because when I... Oh, God, yeah. I think of that performance... Another poster I had over my bed. Oh, well... 
I mean, come on. Come on. It's perfect. What I love about that performance, especially if you haven't seen it in a while, is if you go back and watch the movie, he is acting with every cell in his body, and he's he's amazing. He's actually subtle in in moments. Sweet Transvestite is beautiful. I mean, it's the what he does. There's so much. I know. I watched it recently, and I was like, he's he's like, uh, he's out of, uh, he is from another planet. I believe that he's an alien and yet there's something so simple and beautiful about what he's doing. There's right. no sense of like, you know, he's so in control and so, uh, you know, and sexy and funny and terrifying and, and, and there's pain. I forget like how much pain is in that performance too. It, it, like towards the end of the film and how he's in love with his creation that betrays right. him and, it's he's playing so many things that he didn't have to in that movie that he really but yeah you're you're absolutely right the thing i i got to years ago i got to work with mink stole which was a dream come true and she's a goddamn delight but i was i was talking to her it was it was on one of those eating out movies and so everybody you know it's like all these like hot boys running around and I'm like yeah whatever I get to be with Mink Stoll today <laughs> and I was I was the most annoying fan like I don't ever do with anybody but I just need it and she was so lovely and just you know I'm sure telling me things that she said a million times to people over the years but she was just saying that when they were making those movies the John Waters movies she was like John always knew what he was doing John always knew she goes I and she goes honestly the rest of us did it the rest of us were actors in these movies. Obviously, we had no idea that anyone would see these movies. <laughs> right. Because they're making it on stolen film and they're just showing it in the basement of churches and stuff. Right. And so it's like they were not trying to please an audience. They were trying to honor John's vision. Mm-hmm. And she was like, we were just actors in this thing. And she goes, Divine never thought that he would be a star. Divine never believed that, you know, until way, way, way later. It was just Divine was just being divine and that's why divine was a star because it was no sense of like love me love me see me look at me and you know and i think it's like it does take somebody who is completely aware of it has to be this and not this on every you know so it, right. it's i think yes to your point i think it's macro and micro in the sense about the person in charge i think it's about like yeah. the person in charge has to know what choices to make and like exactly what to do um, the people involved in it need to just trust the person in charge. It's true. And I think that like what we're we're talking about in a way is the authenticity of mm-hmm. camp. Mm-hmm. Because what is really fascinating to me, and I'm like I've been thinking about it as you've been talking, because all of these examples, there's an earnestness there. Yeah. It's like, you know, especially coming from a world of comedy or whatever, it would be real easy to present some of these characters as a bit. But yes. when you look at Tim Curry uh, oh. or uh, Kathleen Turner as Beverly Sutphin, or even the idea that Mink and Divine or, you know, uh, David Lockery, they're all, they were just trying to stay true to John's vision. Yes. They weren't doing a bit. They were just right. trying to present uh, the truth of these characters. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's really maybe the delineation between what makes 
uh, camp excel and camp fail. Yes. Or, or maybe I'm wrong, but yeah. um, at the risk of sounding like one of those acting teachers we were talking about earlier. <laughs> um, speaking of committed, committed bits, I wanted to discuss this. Uh, this is a short show all about the intersection of queerness and horror. And uh, you um, definitely play not only one of the most committed uh, undead creatures in film history. Oh my God. <laughs> but I think you also have the distinction of being the only zombie in cinema ever to break it down to Britney Spears. Yeah, that was a real honor. And uh, of course, you guys, we're talking about the <laughs> seminal film, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. Yes. Um, that was so much fun. Um, yeah, that, uh, I remember I auditioned for that movie and I, and I remember my agent called me like, you basically have to go in as a zombie and just sing Hit Me Baby One More Time. And I remember saying to my agent, if I don't get this, I'm leaving Hollywood. <laughs> and and you know what? I, I, I have to credit Julie Brown for this because I was doing, at the time, I was doing Julie Brown's show, The Homecoming Queen's Got a Gun. Right. The musical. So yes, we did yeah. a musical version. Did you see that? Did I did. See? Okay, good. Yeah. So we did that and I played as, and the way that, I mean, Julie, God, she did a brilliant thing because she took a song from the 80s that was a parody. Like, can you imagine... How crazy it would be if the homecoming queen brought a gun to school and started shooting people. How funny. Well, in the 80s, that was hilarious because that wasn't happening. Right. And then Julie had this idea of just a few years ago to like turn it into a musical. And she's like, well, it's this iconic song. I can't change it. So she made it about demon possession. She made it about this. It wasn't a it wasn't a it wasn't a mentally unstable girl. She also cast a man, me. As the homecoming queen, who was possessed by the spirit of Veronica, a 1950s cheerleader who fell off a homecoming float and wreaked havoc through the, you know. And so it was, it was, I had to be a demon. Right. In that show. And uh, I, when I went, I was right when I went in for that thing. So I was just really tapped into just, just being this sort of undead, crazy creature and making crazy noises and movements of my body. So yeah, that was the whole audition was just go in and do Britney Spears. And then they, in the movie, they made it that I was this homeless guy that was trying to get change mm. in the thing. And then I show up later as a zombie. Uh, you, but you do, if you, I don't know if you clock at the beginning of the movie, I am wearing a Britney Spears t-shirt. Right. And so I'm clearly a homeless Britney fan. And then um, it also becomes my demise as well. I mean, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, but yeah, that was, that was such a blast. I mean, um, Ty Sheridan, Logan Miller, and Joey Morgan such funny guys. That was that were, it was a it was a good time. And uh, di- directed by Chris Landon, Chris Landon, queer horror filmmaker, queer horror giant. He was wonderful. It was it was so you know, yeah. Um, this is probably gonna kick me in the butt when Chris eventually is on the show. But I did a panel with him at Comic Con uh, a few years ago, and he walked in, and I was like, "What? You have no business being that beautiful and a talented I know. writer." I know he's, <laughs> he's stunning. Yes. and 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 so nice and smart and. The thing is, too, that I, I, he, you know, those kids in the movie, he was like giving them film school. Like he mm-hmm. was showing that they were really curious about how the, the shot was made and they really had all these questions. You right. know, and another director would be like, shut up and be an actor and just get, right. you know. And, uh, but he, I was really impressed with his patience with them. Um, and just in, in terms of like, you know, showing them how to make a movie and passing along the thing, you know, he comes obviously from, a legacy, and I just thought it was really cool that he was that, um, you know, parental with them in, in that way. 
I uh, I love that Julie Brown is the through line to you kind of finding your 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 inner Britney zombie. Oh my god. <laughs> That's <laughs> Doesn't like, that make sense though? It does. Doesn't that all work together? Cuz I remember, you know, I mean watching, I mean I loved just say Julie and Earth Girls are easy and all that, but The Edge what, that one year, do you remember that show? Did you ever oh, see I do. that show? Okay, from, yeah. That show I was just like obsessed. That was like this is everything for me <laughs> um in homecoming queens got a gun the musical yeah mm-hmm. uh, as you said you play the homecoming queen yes uh and um you portray a lot of kind of drag characters yeah. over the course of your career yeah um was drag but you are you yourself would not describe yourself as a drag queen no i've always said you know if i i've always described myself as an accidental drag queen right um because the way i mean like it really was like, <clears throat> I guess from the years of doing sketch comedy, and but at the Groundlings, and this has changed at the Groundlings with with the world changing and everything. But we they were very hard on us about playing characters within our own gender, right? Uh, and I do think there's real um, value to that because you have to learn how to play a character before you're trying to do an opposite gender. I mean, a lot, I think the, the, the con, the thing, and when I would teach at the Groundlings, it's like the gender is never the joke. Right. The gender, it's never like, look, I'm a dude in a dress. Look how funny that is. Right. Um, you know, the, I, I refuse to watch men play women in a falsetto voice like that Monty Python, like, hello. It's like, right. women don't sound like that. That's not women, you know? Right. And there's a baseline misogyny to that. As there well. absolutely yeah, yeah. is. Absolutely. But I grew up watching kids in the hall and right. Terry Sweeney on SNL. And I was like, that is good. That right. is, again, like we're saying, it's authenticity. It's right. respect for who you're playing. And I grew up with a lot of strong women. As a gay man, I love women. And I and I'm out, the actresses are who I'm way more interested in. Right. So I sort of fell into it. And then at the Groundlings, when I sort of earned the right to explore different characters, it's where they came out. And I mean, Chloe Sevigny came from me doing a different character and looking in a mirror and going, I look like Chloe Sevigny or, you know, and then I just started getting asked to do these shows where I am playing, you know, and I've gotten to do a lot of female characters and I love playing women. And I, you know, it's like, it's just, to me, I don't really see a difference. I just look at the character and the, and the point of view. And it's never about like, Oh, this is a woman or, Oh, this is a man. And so it's been, it's really exciting to me that like, you know, um, you know, and just with the world sort of changing in terms of like, you know, and I love that, you know, again, like, you know, Louis Anderson um, on, oh my God, Buckets? Is that the show? That Why I am I forgetting know. the name of the show that he's brilliant on where he's the mom? Um, Yeah. Like, yeah, like that on TV, we're accepting like, oh, it's, and it only comes from, it's only good when you're, you know authentic at doing that but yeah I, I'm, I'm never offended when people call me a drag queen right. I just say like you know why would I be but I don't feel like I can own that because I have respect for real drag queens right. that I don't really do like I don't really know how to paint my face I don't lip sync I don't sing I don't I don't sew I don't you know I don't right. you know so so it is interesting though you know because I've seen you portray a number of characters of, of baskets that's the name of the oh, show baskets. it just came to me god I'm an idiot uh, I've, I've seen <laughs> buckets. you buckets <laughs> buckets feels like it could be a show um, you know that show 
pockets. Um, no, I, I've seen you portray a number of different characters, some some in drag, uh, and I, I do think that it is interesting, especially when you mentioned Chloe, because as as I said at the top of the show, that sort of was a breakaway phenomenon. And but like, what, yeah, I no idea. Which you, uh, I think that we had mentioned before we started that you you originally started portraying her 16 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> what I think is interesting, uh, just specifically about this conversation, and those of you who know Drew, because of the Chloe videos, uh, he has remarked upon these many, many times. And, you, you know, the best way to just uh, indulge in those is go watch them. They are still all on the Internet. Thank but uh, the one thing I do want to want to talk about is you... Uh, have had this career off and on portraying her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and despite not necessarily uh, a, a drag queen yourself, you kind of keep ending up in drag circles. And yes. you got booked recently to portray Chloe at Wigstock, which oh had to have been it was a dream, a crazy experience. It was a crazy experience. I was so touched that I was even asked to be a part of it because yeah, like I'm not I I I've I'm you know, now that like Drag Race has been on the air for 10 11 years, you know, drag has exploded and there are 8 bajillion drag queens, which is awesome and right. You know, you go downtown LA and there there are three or four drag shows a night and the lineup is people we've never heard of and that's so exciting to me. There's yeah. so many people doing drag. And so I'm not in that world. I'm not I obviously was not on Drag Race. Uh, nor have I pursued that. Uh, I'm not, um, you know, a legend where it's like, oh my God, you know, like in that, like Jackie beat Sherry Vine, Lady Bunny space. Right. Um, You know, then there are people like, you know, anyway, being asked to do that, I was very, very touched that I, that, that, you know, some person who's made YouTube videos for over 15 years is going to be asked to do it. So that was huge for me. And then being backstage with all of those people, it would have been. And I know they they did a lot of, you know, they 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 did take a lot of footage of backstage, and I hope that shows up somewhere someday. But I also was laughing to myself, like God, this would be so boring because we were all so nice. It was the most lovely <laughs> group of people. These monsters who have just like professional wrestlers or whatever, like to, who like I love to act like they have this rivalry. We're like the sweetest people backstage. People were borrowing wigs and makeup. They were doing each other's hair. Like I came back from doing my my like five minute bit and Amanda Lepore was in my seat and she was like, I'm so sorry. Do you mind if I, I go, you're a man, you sit on my face, on my <laughs> everything. I don't, you're Amanda Lepore. Right. Please do everything. You know, when I got to sit back, I got to hang out with Dina Martina, who's a friend, like just like these lovely people who are you know Joey Arias and and then like Desmond is amazing the eleven year old drag queen and then um is it Darcel who's eighty eight I want to say the world's oldest oh, yeah, yeah. living drag queen all of us backstage and then we all got up and did a they 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 asked us to do you know five minutes or less and um I was very nervous um because I wanted to do to do well for wig stock. I mean, this right. is something that I watched. I watched that documentary as a child and it was like, you know, and thanks to Neil Patrick Harris and, and, and David for making this happen because, and lady bunny, they, they pretty much organized the whole thing, but I wanted to do well by them. I wanted it to right. be like a thing where, you know, like, you know, it, 
and um and I went out and I went out there like not even knowing if people would know who I was because right. I was like and I not even saying that like oh are they gonna but I was like you know I made these videos a couple of years ago I I do I mean I've we've made new ones in the last year but like I hadn't for a couple of years I know how quick things turn around I had no idea and I um I will say I I went out and the audience was the most lovely that was the thing you could just feel the love in the air right and they were so great I had such a good time um and then I got to like walk around uh, outside and meet people who were either like fans or had never seen me before that wanted to just chat and hang out and and it was such an equalizer it was such a the spirit of wigs talk what it's really about it's not about like you know because Drag Race is amazing, but it does create a culture of there's right. a winner right. and somebody's better than somebody else. And just like we talk about, we, we get into arguments about like, I'm team so-and-so and I'm team so-and-so. And it's like, it's not about that. It's really, a, you know, it really is about like, we're all outsiders. We're all queer. We're all like trying to find our own space in this. And it was right. just so nice to like, Everybody was giving it to each other. I love that. Well, I love discussions because, you know, just as much as the show is about uh, the horror genre, it's also just about queer impact in art and queer yeah. community. And I love, you know, discussing the community and seeing how art helps and saves and builds up our community. And one thing I would like the wig stock of it all aside, uh, and then we can move in, into another topic. One thing that I do think is is fun is I saw a flyer recently uh, advertising some event uh, that you're doing where it's uh, such and such and such and such and Drew Drogi as Chloe. Uh-huh. Is it bizarre to get booked for things <laughs> knowing that like they are asking specifically like I have to be her tonight as opposed oh, to. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, for sure. And it's like uh, for a while when the videos were like at the height of their popularity, whatever that means. But when I was getting, I did back off from it for a while because I was only being asked to do that and only being like on, when I would come and do podcasts, that's all people want to talk about. Right. And now it's like really fun to like pop in and, and do it from time to time and sort of, sort of limit my, Appearances, and then there's some things I'll do, and I'll go. Can I be somebody else, or can right. I be myself? Well, I love your Tanya Roberts. Well, well. thank you. Uh, Tanya is <laughs> my favorite character to play because she's just a mess. She's disgusting, <laughs> um, and it's just every like drunk and horny thought I have, I get to just like filter it through Tanya Roberts, um, and it's nothing like the real Tanya Roberts. I hope. I don't think. Uh, um, well, we have a call-in guest. No, okay. I'm <laughs> oh my god, I know. I'd be like, oh, because I do love the real Tanya Roberts. Um, but no, I, it's really, it's fun to have a variety yeah. pack and, and, and sort of an arsenal of like, read the room and go, what kind right. of a show is this? And what would be the best for this? And yeah, I'm doing a holiday show at, at Faultline uh, for Dirty Looks, which is this awesome alternative gay film festival. And there are parties and all across the, you know, um, uh, they're, then they're across the, world now i know they're they're also in new york and they're doing something in chicago anyway i'm doing i could bradford nordine's a friend of mine and i love him and his events are always really fun and so we're doing that and it's like yeah it's gonna be you know i love popping in and doing that and you know i i, I do now try to say he asked me specifically how do you want to be billed right and i was like well don't say because sometimes i'll i'll do things and they'll just put chloe 70 on there and i'm like well it's there is you guys are aware there is a person named Chloe Seventy that's not me, right? And I was like, we don't want. We like also that's false advertising. I don't want people to think that it's literally her. Also, that's not fair to her. Like, don't drag her. Th- don't make her show up at Faultline. <laughs> 
I bet she's been to Fault Line. Uh, she probably has, yeah. uh, in a very important hat. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, yeah. And then I also was like, I don't want to Drew Drogi as Chloe 70, because I, again, I was like, Chloe now has become my own character. Right. And it is, it, but it's not her at all. Like, I don't, right. you know, so I, that's why I just say, like, use my full name, because just Chloe without my name is like, I don't know that that's, I don't, right. I haven't made that a thing. I would thing. assume that's just like some woman who works at Claire's. <laughs> just, uh, I'm Chloe. I went here to talk about crafts. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's, um, he specifically asked me, how do you want to be billed? And I said that like, just Drew Drogi as Chloe, but you know, I mean. So, uh, <laughs> I love that. I just saw the flyer the other day and I was like, that's just so, because your name has value, uh, as for all, for so many things that like these specific events that are like, well, <laughs> we want Drew, but we, we are going to do Drew as Chloe this yeah, week. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's gotta well, be, it's just because there are people who only know me as Chloe and that's fine. And they're who are going to show up to the party that only want to talk to Chloe there. I've definitely hosted a lot of parties as Chloe that I would never be invited to as Drew. Gotcha. I mean, that's the thing that we always laugh at about like, you know, when you're, invited to you know play for the king but you're not part of the party like you know it's yeah. that you know and you're just like okay i'm a hired gun um i've been invited to some very mean gay parties that i was like these mean gays would never want me around as me but they love me as chloe you know when i put the wig gotcha. on so it's fine give me a page just pay me and let me go home <laughs> so um before we head off into the night there is one uh last and big thing that i want to talk about uh you re- you were just talking about how you had watched the wigstock documentary and how yes. that really was very impactful for you and then to go from watching the documentary and seeing the landscape of the the late 80s early 90s when that documentary is made uh-huh. uh to when they did the revival this year and just like the change in the, in the community, the visibility in the community and drag and these and, and such uh, it's, it shows the changing landscape of, of art and mm-hmm. how uh, gay and queer and LGBTQ can be represented in art. And recently uh, you had this celebrated uh, one person show that you wrote and are in uh, bright colors and bold patterns. I always automatically want to switch the words. I, for some I, please, I do it too, so I don't mind. Uh, <laughs> I'm never offended when people go, what is your show called? I'm like, I, I know, I know, it's that, that show. Well, I know what it's called, but I'm just like, bold <laughs> colors, bright patterns? No, uh, I, 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 I just love to, I have word salad all the time. Um, I get it. But uh, So your show, Bright Colors bold pat- and Bold Patterns, uh, you recently also did the film version of it mm-hmm. that uh, went around to festivals mm-hmm. and it's had like a life where other people are now portraying the character that you created. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this show was you said you wrote it sort of as a response to post-gay marriage mm-hmm. uh, being passed, that you felt like there was this changing landscape where uh, it seemed like the community was rushing towards heteronormative ideals. And I wanted yeah. to talk to you about that because I find that really interesting. Well, uh yeah, it was a lot of things. It was sort of like it was happening as I was writing it. I was realizing what I was saying. Yeah. So it didn't come out of a place of like, I need to write it. It was just sort of like, what am I trying to say with this? Um, yeah, really quickly, I was invited to a wedding, a real wedding who, of the most lovely, incredible people, a straight couple um, who asked the guests not to wear bright colors or bold patterns right. to the wedding. Uh, they wanted a very neutral desert palette for their guests. They had beautiful pictures. Right. But it hit me when I read the invite. Uh, first of all, I saw bright colors and bold patterns as such a title. I was like, that's a title of something. Right. And it hit me. And I, as I was 
going down to the wedding, which was in Palm Springs, I started thinking about that in context with with gay marriage. Right. And I was like, what if this was a gay wedding where you were asked not to do that? And as I've done the show, I've since had people tell me there are plenty of gay weddings that have had that have very strict um, dress codes for imagine. their guests. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. But I was like, what is that really saying to gay people, especially when it's in context of the words bright and bold? Right. And when it's like, don't, be, and also colors and patterns, like those those words were all important to me. And the idea of like, we're muting all of that. We're, we're, we're softening all of that. And as much as I was thrilled by marriage equality mm-hmm. passing, and I'm a huge fan of gay marriage and I hope to be married one day. I also have a feeling that like, I was like dismayed about how quickly and instantly our culture was rushing towards heteronormative ideals. Right. Like now that we can get married, everyone should get married and everyone should want to be married. Right. And if you're in any sort of relationship, you better get married because that's the thing that your parents did or that's the thing you saw like working in society. And so what I was afraid of was losing our queerness. Right. And our otherness, like where we've been talking about all day. And it's like, I was like, let's not forget we are different and that's great. Right. That's not our problem. That's everyone else's problem. But we get to be freaks. Let's still be freaks. Let's still be, you know, so I created this character who is in a crisis moment, who is nowhere near uh, ready to settle down in a relationship, who, you know, is always the one who gets a little too drunk, a little too coked up, a little too talky, <laughs> slash nightmare way, way too much all those things right um as a point to just go let's not forget that we're this right we have all this in us and let's celebrate that and not be afraid of that and not you know sort of rush towards being some dull boring version of like hey dude i also was like as an actor the gay roles i was auditioning for they they went from these as patrick bristow would say swish and fetch it roles that were like, girl, lady, please, mama, she runs it, hunty, <laughs> into these really boring roles that were like, hey, dude, I like guys too. Deal with it. And I'm, I miss the stereotypical gay parts because I'm like, well, at least there was flavor in that. Right. At least there was something specific in that versus like these really dull, scrubbed clean roles where you have to be, you know, and it's just like, God, I, you know. Uh, it's just the it's the it's like I don't want to see straight washing of right. gay characters and of gay culture, and that's what I was railing against in the show. And I was really happy that that was accepted because I also was putting the show up in a time where we were like so happy for marriage equality, which right. I was too, and had a lot. I did have some pushback of people going, "What are you saying that we?" And I'm like, "Well, you're not really understanding." Well, I what think something <laughs> that the world at large has is a hard time reckoning with, and by the world at large, I mean like non-queer people, mm-hmm. is that um, the fight for equality doesn't necessarily mean that we want the same things. Yes. But we want the ability to live our lives yes. with the equality and freedom that you do. Yes. I think that like, and and I think that, and there are going to be gay people who do want the the marriage in the house and the five and like, that's yeah. fine and that's great that's what they want you know and I think that every that the thing is is like we just wanted a world where we could chase and achieve the happiness that everybody else is allowed right. uh, and that's it it's sort of like you know um, and it and it shouldn't be either or right 
Exactly. Uh, and I think it's a phenomenal show. I really, you know, I I, you. I caught it on the festival circuit. I was at, it was at Outfest this year. I saw it, it had, uh, played at a number of places. And one of the conversations... It actually, to be honest, it only it only played at Outfest. And hopefully we'll be playing somewhere else. But we it's online. You can watch it on Broadway oh, HD. Yeah. So you can, Annie, you can watch it right now if you want. It's bright colors and bold patterns on BroadwayHD.com. Fast? Oh, good, yeah. good. But yeah, you, yeah it, Outfest was so great. And they screened it. And I've... Maybe never been more nervous in my life. To say, I love to talk about how, how nervous I am. I'm like, I'm never nervous. And I've talked about being nervous forever today. But sitting in a, that giant room watching me perform it where I had no power. But they were love. It was a lovely. Well, you and I audience. had a conversation at Outfest. And I don't know if you remember this. Uh, but it was actually related to Die, Mommy, Die. Because when you were in Die, Mommy, Die, I came and saw it. And I'm a big fan of Charles Bush. And I love that play. And uh, you and I had uh, run into each other, I think at Akbar or somewhere. And uh, you had uh, mentioned that Charles was in town. Mm-hmm. And I had asked you uh, if if Charles was going to come see Die, Mommy, Die. Mm-hmm. We had this whole conversation yeah. about how it's very uh, unusual when you are a creator who has written a role for yourself that's so personal for, to yeah. you to have, even though you're happy someone else is playing it, sure. to, to then go mm-hmm. and see someone else do it. Yes. And then that that conversation happened before other people were were in bright colors and bold patterns. Yes. And then by the time I saw you at Outfest, I said I re, I, re, I said, "Do you remember having this conversation?" And now people are playing the part that you created. <laughs> What's that like? It's crazy. I okay, so yes, I um you know, now I know Charles and when I Went and went to his apartment to have tea, as you do with, with Charles Bush. You know, he was very proper and right. and just so wonderful. Anyway, we it was when I was about to go do Die, Mommy, Die. And he was so supportive and he was like, oh, my God, I'm, I bet you'll be wonderful. And, you know, and I and I sort of hinted around about like if he'd want to come and see it. And I could just feel he was like, oh, I mean, I would love to see if we could. And I just felt the energy sort of shift. And I just asked him, I said, do you like watching your, your shows? And he's like, it's really hard because it's hard. And and, I, and it instantly made sense to me. Right. Because when someone's not good, you have to pretend like they're great. When someone's great, you're insecure about what you did. Right. You know, he didn't say as much, but I could infer that. And I got it. And I was like, oh, yeah. And also you don't you're also sitting in an audience of people who are aware when you're Charles Bush and the audience is there to see Charles. They all know who Charles is and what he looks like and who, you know, his whole thing as they should. And they're watching Charles watch the play. And it's a weird experience for that whole audience, for that actor who's doing the role for Charles, for everyone involved. It's awkward. And it's and it's not really like we're saying an authentic night it's just this weird exercise and like what's gonna happen and who's and we all have to pretend like we're loving this we're not really watching this right here right and so when we went to do it i said a celebration i was like you know what let's i don't want to uninvite him of course if he wants to come and see it i would love i'd be so honored but it's fine because i also know that like i i don't want to do it that night knowing he's there that whole audience it's that experience for them is different you know and so I totally got it with bright colors. I did it so many times and I did it over a hundred times. I got to a point that I was sort of done with it. I right. was like, and, um, I, we wanted to keep the show running in New York and I had stuff that I had to leave for. And I also was like, I, I don't want to hate this. I don't right. want to hate my show. I love this. Sh- this is the thing I wrote from, 
the bottom of my heart. So we were always saying like, well, what if, well, if Jeff Hiller did, did it, he'd be amazing. You know, we always mentioned Jeff's name. And then when we actually had the conversation, they're like, do we want to keep this running? And how do you feel? And at that point, I was so really ready to give it to someone else. And when Jeff said yes, I was so excited. Mm -hmm. And I honestly went and I was in this weird space to go see my, and I have to be honest, not just saying this, Jeff was so good in my show that I forgot that it was my show. I forgot that I had written it. I had done it over a hundred times and I was watching it going, I'm so enjoying. And I had these flashes, of course, back to like, oh yeah, that's a set you were on. That's These are words you wrote. <laughs> but Jeff so made it his own that I just, and I got to see him do it twice and he was so good. And um, also Tom DeTrinis did the role um, for a bit and I only got to see him in rehearsals and he was so good too. Right. And he was different. I mean, you know, um, and hopefully we're going to have some other people do the role coming up. And I'm, I'm at a point with that show. I'm thrilled to, you know, I'm ready to write something new and move right. on. Um, so I think it's, you know, I used to think, oh, it's, it's, it would always be weird. I feel like if it's when you're in a place with a show right when you've started it, you don't want to give it to anybody else. Right. You want to be the one to do it. But at a certain point now I'm like, I, I would love to see all my friends. I'd be honored to see any of my friends do my show and see what they would do with it. Well, as I said, it's a fabulous show. See it live if you can. See Drew's uh, film version on Broadway HD. Uh, and speaking of writing something new, uh, What's next? What are you working on now? I'm working on a us? new. I'm. It's so in the early stages. Hopefully, uh, it will be ready for a theater festival. I don't even know if I can. Anyway, the summer. Um, yeah, it's gonna be a new. I think it's gonna be a solo show. I think it's gonna be a night of characters. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to not make it be a night of characters. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm trying yeah. to not to be my sketch real right as much as having a bigger point but i'm i'm uh yeah i'm trying to do sort of a a follow-up to bright colors that's not in not the same character and not in the not in the same plot of that but sort of like a a kind of where we are now mm -hmm. and i want to be like oh uh you know um there are a lot of different gay people in me that i want to like bring out for the next one so instead of doing the last one i did one character i think i'm going to try several but I'm just I'm trying to get over my fear of it looking like me trying to do my, you know, gay SNL audition. That's what I want to avoid. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, I, I said this before we started recording. One of the things uh, about having you on is you have done so much work. I know that we uh, would not get to everything, but you have such an amazing body of work. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't even get to talk about Heather's, but if you haven't watched it out there, please check it out. Uh, it's on Please watch it. I love it. I'm so I, it's so special to me. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, as, as you said, Bright Colors and Bold Patterns is on Broadway HD. Uh, there are so many places to see Drew do uh, his amazing work. Uh, Drew, I really just value that you spent time to come and talk about. Oh my god, thank you. This was so much fun. I love this queerness and all the stuff that we love to chat about. Uh, where can people find you? I I'm very easy to find. I'm on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Drew Drogi. Oh, Instagram, there's a there's an underscore between Drew and Drogi. Those underscores are tricky. I know. <laughs> I like to keep it weird like that. Uh, is there any uh, any particular thing that you want to shout out before we head out into the night? Um, I don't think so. I don't know what it's I have I, I, I don't even know what yeah, yeah, you've already mentioned my show. Um 
I have a podcast that's hopefully coming back soon. People do ask about that, which is really nice when people ask. Um, so hopefully I'll be doing minor revelations soon. It's in the works. I'm working on it. Um, and yeah, that's all. That's all I know. Well, that's a good thing to know. Yeah. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you, Michael. So fun. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months. <laughs>